So, we're coming back with another one. Wait a minute. Joe, are you starting another podcast with a Kanye West song? What? Looks like I am, motherfuckers. Nope. Yep. Rumble. Gossip, gossip, I'm white, can't say that. Everybody know I'm a motherfucking monster. I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert. I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert. Profit, profit, I'm white, I can't say that. Everybody know I'm a motherfucking monster. I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert. I'ma need to see your fucking hand. And the devil is, and I'm about to take it to another level, No assist. Kanye should hire me. No, I'm just fucking kidding. All right. What's up, my home dogs? Starting another podcast. And yes, <laughs> I started it with Kanye West again. Um, little as you know, the last song that I played on... The previous episode, yes, it was Jay-Z, but Kanye West was still in it, and surprisingly enough, Kanye West makes really good music, as crazy as he may seem. Um, Speaking of crazy, this episode is going to be about people who hallucinate. So, I was going to do it kind of like I did the last episode, but as I was reading, I realized that, oh my god, Carl Sagan did it again, I feel like... I'm just going to read this episode to you because, oof, it's just pretty interesting, and I don't want to leave anything out. Um, I mean, I will be skipping over little things here and there, but my goodness, this will be an interesting episode. Um, The chapter we'll be going over for this episode is chapter six, titled Hallucinations. So let's get this party started, if it hasn't already started already for you. Bump into that gossip, gossip. I can't say that because I'm white. Just stop it. I'm going to see your motherfucking hands at the concert. All right, man. Let's go. Let's get this chin diggy dick dick diggly licky diggly dick 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 diggy going. Hey there, what's up? How are you? This is the show with Joe. Hey there, how you doing today? This is the show with Joe. I hope you're doing all right now because this is the show with Joe. Enjoy this podcast, homies. Welcome to the show with Joe. Oh, yeah. Why, hello there, and welcome to another podcast episode of The Show with Joe. In this episode, we'll be covering Chapter 6, titled Hallucinations, from Carl Sagan's book, The Demon-Haunted World. In the beginning of this chapter, he has an interesting quote that kind of sets the stage, and almost sums up the chapter in a way, um, from someone called Lucretius who I believe was a a, a Roman poet and philosopher back in the old Roman times of 60 BC. And on the nature of things, he wrote, as Carl Sagan quotes in the beginning here, As children tremble and fear everything in the blind darkness, so we in the light sometimes fear what is no more to be feared than the things children in the dark hold in terror. Now, what's interesting um, about this quote is that, you know, this chapter kind of goes over, you know, how children can hallucinate because they have active imaginations. And this is a very 
cool quote actually when when you read the chapter and then you go back to this quote um, because well he talks about children being crazy in the way that they are with their active imaginations not that they're crazy um, there's nothing wrong with hallucinating I guess unless it's really bad but kids see things that they probably didn't actually see because their uh, imaginations are very active and their brains are going a little crazy and so it's quite interesting um, that he quoted that from ages and ages ago. Um, but to start the chapter off, uh, Carl Sagan kind of starts off by talking about advertisements in a magazine called UFO Universe, which is a magazine that that was uh, specifically for people who really believed in aliens and, and the UFOs being alien spaceships. So he pretty much states that you know these ads are obviously made for gullible people and it's interesting that in the UFO Universe magazine that the advertisements in there had quotes that were, well, not quotes, but, you know, advertisements specifically for people who are super gullible. Like, uh, here's a couple that I kind of took out of the chapter. I got a girl. Do you? Stop missing out. Get girls now. That's a exact advertisement from a UFO magazine. Um, and another one is... Bring miraculous good luck, love, and money into your life. These powers have worked for centuries. They can work for you. <laughs> and here's another one. The famous money magnet. Would you like more money? <laughs> anyway, um, you would believe in those kind of advertisements and click on those if it was like an online magazine or so. Magazine, what am I kidding? An online website. If you click one of those, then you're... Um, yeah, you're probably very prone to believing in uh, aliens visiting the, the United States and the whole world because um, <laughs> you're clicking on stupid shit. Anyway, uh, not to belittle anybody, but that's just my opinion. So um, then he goes on to talk about alien abductions and how what's weird about the alien abductions that he's read and that Carl Sagan has learned about um, are that they're very relevant to current issues and... What I mean by that is that, for example, when abductees or when abductions started to occur, most abductees reported that they got lectures from aliens on the dangers of nuclear war. And when they started to occur, alien um, sightings and, well, not even sightings, but alien abductions, um, it was around the Cold War time where nuclear war was kind of very scary. So it's interesting that those abductees would report that, you know, they got abducted and aliens gave them lectures on the dangers of what nuclear war could bring. And he mentions that now, which was the 1990s, um, aliens appeared to be more fixated on environmental degradation and AIDS, which he finds kind of interesting, again, because it's a current issue back in the 1990s and even now, more so environmental degradation. Um, and he kind of asks the question, why are aliens, quote, so bound to fashionable or urgent concerns on this planet. Why did they not bring up CFCs and ozone depletion in the 1950s or about HIV in the 1970s when it would have actually done some good? And CFCs are carbofluorocarbons. They're kind of what scientists talk about when they're talking about um, environmental problems and ozone depletion and so on. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm really good at explaining what it does, but climate change and all that stuff that's what he's talking about why didn't they bring that up in the 1950s um, where we could have actually done something about it earlier rather than later and it's kind of interesting that alien abductions tend to always be something about morality or current issues and not anything about you know 
something that you can actually prove to be insightful in a way, I guess. Um, so he goes on and he quotes, And if one of the chief purposes of alien visitations is admonitions about global dangers, why tell it only to a few people whose accounts are suspect anyway? Why not televise it to everyone all at once? Surely they can do this if they can travel across light years to get here. What an interesting uh, comment there that Carl Sagan kind of brings up. is if, if they're abducting these people just to tell them about all these dangers, why wouldn't they just televise it to everyone, you know? Like, if they're aliens and they have the technology to travel across light years to visit the Earth, don't you think they could easily just tell everybody all at once? Like, hey, I'm on your radio FM channel and I'm going to tell you everything uh, there is to know about the dangers that lie ahead. Uh, no, you don't really see that because, well... They're not real abductees. Um, that's the whole point of bringing this stuff up is because it's just a little crazy in a way. Um, and we go over hallucinations a little bit in here. Um, and you can tell based on my reading when I start reading that he's not saying that, you know, it's a terrible thing that people hallucinate. He's just saying that it happens. We should be aware of it. And we shouldn't, you know, pretend that hallucinations are actually real. But what's interesting is that hallucinations can be real for the people that experience them. And so it's hard to um, deal with it, I guess, because when people talk to you about their hallucinations, it's very real to them. And when you talk to them and you, and you uh, listen to what they have to say, you're probably going to believe that, you know, they really felt that way and that that really happened to them. Um, but anyway, let's go on. So I'm going to read uh, pretty long passages here. I'm going to try to cut in between a little bit, but... Um, we're going to go over some UFO abductee stories and hallucination in London. Um, so I'm going to start reading here. The earliest commercial successful UFO contactee was George Adamski. He operated a tiny restaurant at the foot of California's Mount Palomar and set up a small telescope out and back. At the summit of the mountain was the largest telescope on Earth, the 200-inch reflector of the Carnegie Institution of Washington and the California Institute of Technology. Adamski styled himself Professor Adamski of Mount Palomar Observatory. He published a book. It caused quite a sensation, I recall. Carl Sagan's quotes here, obviously. In which he described how in the desert nearby he had encountered nice-looking aliens with long blonde hair and, if I remember correctly, white robes who warned Adamski about the dangers of nuclear war. There's the example there. You go on. They hailed from the planet Venus whose 900-degree Fahrenheit surface temperature we can now recognize as a barrier to Adamski's credibility. In person, he was utterly convincing. The Air Force officer nominally in charge of UFO investigations at the time described Adamski in these words, quotes, To look at the man and to listen to his story, you had an immediate urge to believe him. Maybe it was his appearance. He was dressed in well-worn but neat overalls, he had slightly graying hair and the most honest pair of eyes I've ever seen. And Carl Sagan goes on, Adamski's star slowly faded as he aged. But he self-published other books and was a long-standing fixture at conventions of flying saucer believers. The first alien abduction story in the modern genre was that of Betty and Barney Hill, a New Hampshire couple. She was a social worker and he a post office employee. During a late night drive, in 1961, through the White Mountains, Betty spotted a bright, initially star-like UFO that seemed to follow them. Because Barney feared it might harm them, 
They left the main highway for narrow mountain roads, arriving home two hours later than they had expected. The experience prompted Betty to read a book that described UFOs as spaceships from other worlds. Their occupants were little men who sometimes abducted humans. Soon after, she experienced a terrifying, repetitive nightmare in which she and Barney were abducted and taken aboard the UFO. Barney overheard her describing this dream to friends, co-workers, and volunteer UFO investigators. It's curious that Betty didn't discuss it with her husband directly. By a week or so after the experience, they were describing a pancake-like UFO with uniformed figures seen from the craft's transparent windows. Several years later, Barney's psychiatrist preferred him to a Boston hypnotherapist, Benjamin Simon, M.D., Betty came to be hypnotized as well. Under hypnosis, they separately filled in details of what had happened during the missing two hours. They watched the UFO land on the highway and were taken, partly immobilized, inside the craft, where short gray humanoid creatures with long noses, a detail discordant with the current paradigm, subjected them to unconventional medical examinations, including a needle in her navel before amniocentesis has been invented on Earth. There are those who now believe that eggs were taken from Betty's ovaries and sperm from Barney, although that isn't part of the original story. The captain showed Betty a map of interstellar space with the ship's routes marked. Martin S. Kottmeyer, many of the motifs in the Hills account, can be found in a 1953 motion picture, Invaders from Mars. In Barney's story of what the aliens looked like, especially their enormous eyes, emerged in a hypnosis session just 12 days after the airing of an episode of the television series The Outer Limits, in which such an alien was portrayed. Suspicious, huh? Go on. The Hill case was widely discussed. It was made into a 1975 TV movie that introduced the idea that short, gray alien abductors are among us into the psyches of millions of people. But even the few scientists of the time who thought that some UFOs might in fact be alien spaceships were wary. The alleged encounter was conspicuous by its absence from the list of suggestive UFO cases compiled by James E. McDonald, a University of Arizona atmospheric physicist. In general, those scientists who have taken UFOs seriously have tended to keep the alien abduction accounts at arm's length, while those who take alien abductions at face value see little reason to analyze mere lights in the sky. And Carl Sagan goes on. McDonald's view on UFOs was based, he said, not on irrefutable evidence, but was a conclusion of last resort. All the alternative explanations seemed to him even less credible. In the middle 1960s, I arranged for McDonald to present his best cases in a private meeting with leading physicists and astronomers who had not before staked a claim on the UFO issue. Not only did he fail to convince them that we were being visited by extraterrestrials, he failed even to excite their interest, and this was a group with a very high wonder quotient. It was simply that where MacDonald saw aliens, they saw much more prosaic explanations. I was glad to have an opportunity to spend several hours with Mr. and Mrs. Hill, and with Dr. Simon. There was no mistaking the earnestness and sincerity of Betty and Barney, and their mixed feelings about becoming public figures under such odd and awkward circumstances. With the Hill's permission... Simon played for me, and at my invitation, McDonald, some of the audio tapes of their sessions under hypnosis. 
By far my most striking impression was the absolute terror in Barney's voice as he described, relived, would be a better word, the encounter. Simon, while a leading proponent of the virtues of hypnosis and war and peace, had not been caught up in the public frenzy about UFOs. He shared handsomely in the royalties of John Fuller's bestseller, The Interrupted Journey, about the Hill's experience. If Simon had pronounced their accounts authentic, the sales of the book might have gone through the roof and his own financial reward been considerably augmented, but he didn't. He also instantly rejected the notion that they were lying, or as suggested by another psychiatrist, that this was a folie de jeu. That's, I'm terrible at French. A shared delusion in which, generally, the submissive partner goes along with the delusion of the dominant partner. So what's left? The Hills, said their psychotherapist, had experienced a species of dream together. In 1984, the International Census of Waking Hallucinations was published in London. From that time to this, the 1990s, Repeated surveys have shown that 10 to 25% of ordinary functioning people have experienced at least once in their lifetimes a vivid hallucination, hearing a voice usually, or seeing a form where there's no one there. More rarely, people sense a haunting aroma, or hear music, or receive a revelation that arrives independent of the senses. In some cases, these become transforming personal events or profound religious experiences. Hallucinations may be a neglected low door in the wall to a scientific understanding of the sacred. Probably a dozen times since their deaths, I've heard my mother or my father, in a conversational tone of voice, call my name. Of course, they called to me often during my life with them, to do a chore, to remind me of a responsibility, to come to dinner, to engage in a conversation, to hear about an event of the day. I still miss them so much that it doesn't seem at all strange that my brain will occasionally retrieve a lucid recollection of their voices. Such hallucinations may occur to perfectly normal people under perfectly ordinary circumstances. And as I said earlier, I didn't mean to call people crazy who have hallucinations because, like I said right here from reading Carl Sagan's book, perfectly normal to go on. Hallucinations can also be elicited by a campfire at night or under emotional stress or during epileptic seizures, or migraine headaches, or high fever, or prolonged fasting, or sleeplessness, or even sensory deprivation. A little sidebar here um, under the chapter, and he talks about the dreams here when he mentions uh, sleeplessness and getting hallucinations. So I'm going to read that little part here because I think it's interesting. He says that uh, dreams are associated with a state called REM sleep, or REM, the abbreviation standing for rapid eye movement. Under the closed eyelids, the eyes move, perhaps following the action in the dream, or perhaps randomly. The REM state is strongly correlated with sexual arousal. Experiments have been performed in which sleeping subjects are awakened whenever the REM state emerges, while members of a control group are awakened just as often each night, but not when they're dreaming. After some days, the control group is a little groggy, but the experimental group, the ones who are prevented from dreaming, is hallucinating in the daytime. It's not that a few people with a particular abnormality can be made to hallucinate in this way. Anyone is capable of hallucinations. So there you go, guys. Just get someone to wake you up while you're in REM sleep so you can hallucinate during the day. Then then you'll be one of those crazy people walking around. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not crazy. Just people being people with their brains and shit happening in their brains and stuff. But to go on, he says that there are also molecules such as the phenothiazines, Thorazine, for example, that make hallucinations go away. 
It is very likely that the normal human body generates substances, perhaps including the morphine-like small brain proteins called endorphins, that cause hallucinations, and others that suppress them. Such celebrated and unhysterical explorers as Admiral Richard Byrd, Captain Joshua Slocum, and Sir Ernest Shackleton all experienced vivid hallucinations when coping with unusual isolation and loneliness. Whatever their neurological and molecular antecedents, hallucinations feel real. They are sought out in many cultures and considered a sign of spiritual enlightenment. Among the Native Americans of the Western Plains, for example, or many indigenous Siberian cultures, a young man's future was foreshadowed by the nature of the hallucination he experienced after a successful vision quest. Its meaning was discussed with great seriousness among the elders and shamans of the tribe. There are countless instances in the world's religions where patriarchs, prophets, or saviors repair themselves to desert or mountain and, assisted by hunger and sensory deprivation, encounter gods or demons. Psychedelic-induced religious experiences were a hallmark of the Western youth culture of the 1960s. That was a really nice way of saying hippie culture. You know, the hippies in the 1960s. (laughs) But to go on, the experience, however brought about, is often described respectfully by the words such as transcendent, numinous, sacred, and holy. Hallucinations are common. If you have one, it doesn't mean you're crazy. (laughs) And here I am calling everybody crazy that has them. Thanks, Carl Sagan, for keeping me in my place. Going on, um, the anthropological literature is replete with hallucination ethnopsychiatry, REM dreams and possession trances, which have many common elements transculturally and across the ages. The hallucinations are routinely interpreted as possession by good or evil spirits. The Yale anthropologist Weston Labare goes so far as to argue that, quote, a surprisingly good case could be made that much of culture is hallucination, and that the whole intent and function of ritual appears to be a group wish to hallucinate reality. What an interesting quote. It's pretty much saying that he thinks our culture is just a group hallucination. <laughs> Interessante. All right, keep going on here. Here's a description of hallucinations as a signal-to-noise problem by Louis J. West, former medical director of the Neuropsychiatric Clinic at the University of California, Los Angeles. It is taken from the 15th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So he goes on. There goes the train. There it goes again. Yeah, this is an interesting um, excerpt from... Thanks, train. From the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, Yeah, let's just do it. It's a nice nice noise. All right, I I think the train might have gone. Yeah, all right. Imagine a man standing at a closed glass window opposite his fireplace, looking out at his garden in the sunset. He is so absorbed by the view of the outside world that he fails to visualize the interior of the room at all. As it becomes darker outside, however, images of the objects in the room behind him can be seen reflected dimly in the window glass. For a time, he may see either the garden, if he gazes into the distance, or the reflection of the room's interior if he focuses on the glass a few inches from his face. Night falls, but the fire still burns brightly in the fireplace and illuminates the room. The watcher now sees in the glass 
a vivid reflection of the interior of the room behind him, which appears to be outside the window. This illusion becomes dimmer as the fire dies down, and finally, when it is dark both outside and within, nothing more is seen. If the fire flares up from time to time, the visions in the glass reappear. In an analogous way, hallucinatory experiences such as those of normal dreams occur when the daylight, or sensory input, is reduced while the interior illumination, the general level of brain arousal, remains bright. And images originating within the rooms of our brains may be perceived, or hallucinated, as though they came from outside the windows of our senses. Another analogy might be that dreams, like the stars, are shining all the time. Though the stars are not often seen by day, since the sun shines too brightly, if during the day there is an eclipse of the sun, or if a viewer chooses to be watchful a while after sunset or a while before sunrise, or if he is awakened from time to time on a clear night to look at the sky, then the stars, like dreams, though often forgotten, may always be seen. A more brain-related concept is that of a continuous information processing activity, a kind of pre-conscious stream, that is influenced continually by both conscious and unconscious forces that constitutes the potential supply of dream content. The dream is an experience during which, for a few minutes, the individual has some awareness of the stream of data being processed. Hallucinations in the waking state also would involve the same phenomenon produced by a somewhat different set of psychological or physiological circumstances. It appears that all human behavior and experience, normal as well as abnormal, is well attended by illusory and hallucinatory phenomena. While the relationship of these phenomena to mental illness has been well documented, their role in everyday life has perhaps not been considered enough. Greater understanding of illusions and hallucinations among normal people may provide explanations for experiences otherwise relegated to the uncanny, extrasensory, or supernatural. So in short, this Encyclopedia Britannica is kind of, some of the examples that they just went over, is pretty much saying that, you know, maybe hallucinations are always prone to being there, and we just need to activate them in some way like he's like he says here um with it always shining like stars you know they're they're there but the sun blocks them out so like when we're in a waking state and our mental faculties are firing the way they should um then you know you probably won't hallucinate but if something happens with your brain or with you know the way you're doing your daily life um like if you're not sleeping enough as, as one of the examples you might end up hallucinating or if you're stressed out about something or heck almost any kind of crazy not crazy but any kind of mental state that could you know bring about hallucinations it's possible that we're very prone to them is kind of what they're saying here um, even if you're a normal human being so to go on with Carl Sagan um, we would surely be missing something important about our own nature if we refuse to face up to the fact that hallucinations are part of being human However, none of this makes hallucinations part of an external rather than an internal reality. Five to ten percent of us are extremely suggestible, able to move at a command into a deep hypnotic trance. Roughly ten percent of Americans report having seen one or more ghosts. This is more than a number who allegedly remember being abducted by aliens, about the same as the number who've been reporting seeing one or more UFOs 
and less than the number who in the last week of Richard Nixon's presidency, before he resigned to avoid impeachment, thought he was doing a good to excellent job as president. At least 1% of all of us is schizophrenic. This amounts to over 50 million schizophrenics on the planet, more than the population of, say, England. I looked up that percentage, by the way, and that's still true today. 1% of human beings are schizophrenic. It's interesting. In this next part of the chapter, um, we'll be going over childhood dreams and, and, you know, how children's believe in those dreams sometimes as if they're realities. But anyway, let's keep it moving. In his 1970 book on nightmares, the psychiatrist John Mack, about whom I will have more to say, writes, quote, There is a period in early childhood in which dreams are regarded as real, and in which the events, transformations, gratifications, and threats of which they are composed are regarded by the child as if they were as much a part of his actual daily life as his daytime experiences. The capacity to establish and maintain clear distinctions between the life of dreams and life in the outside world is hard won and requires several years to accomplish, not being completed even in normal children before ages 8 to 10. Nightmares, because of their vividness and compelling affective intensity, are particularly difficult for the child to judge realistically. And Carl Sagan goes on, When a child tells a fabulous story, a witch was grimacing in the darkened room, a tiger is lurking under the bed. The vase was broken by a multicolored bird that flew in the window, and not because, contrary to family rules, a soccer ball was being kicked inside the house. Is he or she consciously lying? Surely parents often act as if the child cannot fully distinguish between fantasy and reality. Some children have active imaginations. Others are less well endowed in this department, some families may respect the ability to fantasize and encourage the child, while at the same time saying something like, Oh, that's not real. That's just your imagination. Other families may be impatient about confabulating. It makes running the household and adjudicating disputes at least marginally more difficult, and discourage their children from fantasizing, perhaps even teaching them to think it's something shameful. A few parents may be unclear about the distinction between reality and fantasy themselves, or may even seriously enter into the fantasy. Out of all these contending propensities and child-rearing practices, some people emerge with an intact ability to fantasize and a history extending well into adulthood of confabulation. Others grow up believing that anyone who doesn't know the difference between reality and fantasy is crazy. Most of us are somewhere in between. To go on... Abductees frequently report having seen aliens in their childhood, coming in through the window or from under the bed or out of the closet. But everywhere in the world, children report similar stories with fairies, elves, brownies, ghosts, goblins, witches, imps, and a rich variety of imaginary friends. Are we to imagine two different groups of children, one that sees imaginary earthly beings and the other that sees genuine extraterrestrials? Isn't it more reasonable? that both groups are seeing or hallucinating the same thing? Most of us recall being frightened at the age of two and older by real-seeming but wholly imaginary monsters, especially at night or in the dark. I can still remember occasions when I was absolutely terrified, hiding under the bedclothes until I could stand it no longer, and then bolting for the safety of my parents' bedroom. 
If only I could get there before falling into the clutches of the presence. The American cartoonist Gary Larson, who draws in the horror genre, dedicates one of his books as follows. When I was a boy, this is Gary Larson, when I was a boy, our house was filled with monsters. They lived in the closets, under the beds, in the attic, in the basement, and when it was dark, just about everywhere. This book is dedicated to my father, who kept me safe from all of them. That's good for you, Gary Larson. I remember my father telling me there was a big elephant coming down to eat me when I was a kid. I remember it kind of vividly. I think I had enough imagination to actually believe it, because I was a little kid. I remember me, him, and all my brothers were standing outside just talking. And all of a sudden, my dad, just playing tricks, yells, Oh my god! There's an elephant! It's coming! And then they all run inside, and they leave me outside, and they lock the door with me still outside, and I remember bawling my eyes out. Thanks, Dad. It was really nice of you. Thanks for making me think that there was an elephant coming after me. To go on, maybe the abduction therapist should be doing more of that. And what is he talking about? Well, let's keep moving on. Part of the reason that children are afraid of the dark may be that in our entire evolutionary history up until just a moment ago, they never slept alone. Instead, they nestled safely, protected by an adult, usually mom. In the enlightened West, we stick them alone in a dark room, say goodnight, and have difficulty understanding why they're sometimes upset. It makes good evolutionary sense for children to have fantasies of scary monsters. In a world stalked by lions and hyenas, such fantasies help prevent defenseless toddlers from wandering too far from their guardians. How can this safety machinery be effective for a vigorous, curious young animal unless it delivers industrial strength terror? Those who are not afraid of monsters tend not to leave descendants. Eventually, I imagine, over the course of human evolution, almost all children become afraid of monsters. But if we're capable of conjuring up terrifying monsters in childhood, why shouldn't some of us, at least on occasion, be able to fantasize something similar, something truly horrifying, a shared delusion, as adults? Mentioning the uh, alien abductions and UFOs there. Carl Sagan goes on, It is telling that alien abductions occur mainly on falling asleep or when waking up, or on long automobile drives where there is a well-known danger of falling into some auto-hypnotic reverie. Abduction therapists are puzzled when their patients describe crying out in terror while their spouses sleep beside them. But isn't this typical of dreams? Are shouts for help unheard? Might these stories have something to do with sleep? And, as Benjamin Simon proposed for the hills, a kind of dream? A common, although insufficiently well-known, psychological syndrome, rather like alien abduction, is called sleep paralysis. Many people experience it. It happens in that twilight world between being fully awake and fully asleep. For a few minutes, maybe longer, you're immobile and acutely anxious. You feel a weight on your chest as if some being is sitting or lying there. Your heartbeat is quick, your breathing labored. You may experience auditory or visual hallucinations of people, demons, ghosts, aliens, or birds. In the right setting, the experience can have the full force and impact of reality according to Robert Baker, a psychologist at the University of Kentucky. Sometimes there's a marked sexual component to the hallucination. 
Baker argues that these common sleep disturbances are behind many, if not most, of the alien abduction accounts. He and others suggest that there are other classes of abduction claims as well, made by fantasy-prone individuals, say, or hoaxers. Similarly to the Harvard Mental Letter, September 1994, comments, quote, Sleep paralysis may last for several minutes and is sometimes accompanied by vivid dreamlike hallucinations that give rise to stories about visitations from gods, spirits, and extraterrestrial creatures. Carl goes on, We know from early work of the Canadian neurophysiologist Wilder Penfield that electrical stimulation of certain regions of the brain elicits full-blown hallucinations. People with temporal lobe epilepsy involving a cascade of naturally generated electrical impulses in the part of the brain beneath the forehead experience a range of hallucinations almost indistinguishable from reality including the presence of one or more strange beings anxiety floating through the air sexual experiences and a sense of missing time there's also what feels like profound insight into the deepest questions and a need to spread the word A continuum of spontaneous temporal lobe stimulation seems to stretch from people with serious epilepsy to the most average among us. In at least one case reported by another Canadian neuroscientist, Michael Persinger, administration of the anti-epileptic drug carbamazepine eliminated a woman's recurring sense of experiencing the standard alien abduction scenario. So such hallucinations generated spontaneously or with chemical or experiential assists may play a role, perhaps a central role, in the UFO accounts. But such a view is easy to burlesque. UFOs explained away as mass hallucinations. Everyone knows there's no such thing as a shared hallucination. Right? That was quite interesting to learn that, you know, hallucinations come from many different things and... Carl Sagan's pretty much alluding to the fact that mass hallucinations can happen. Maybe not mass, but a shared hallucinations. You know, if you hear about someone being abducted by aliens and you're reading about it a lot, or if you're really interested in it, and all of a sudden your brain gets into a, a state in which you become hallucinating, um, you might actually hallucinate that very thing that you've been reading about and exposing yourself to. So you're pretty much sharing an hallucination with other people, which makes it kind of a shared hallucination. In a way. Um, so, you know, to end the chapter, I'll go on with the lovely Carl Sagan. As the possibility of extraterrestrial life began to be widely popularized, especially around the turn of the last century by Percival Lowell with his Martian canals, we talked about that in one of the previous chapters, if you remember, people began to report contact with aliens, mainly Martians. The psychologist Theodore Flurney's 1901 book, From India to the Planet Mars, describes a French-speaking medium who, in a trance state, drew pictures of the Martians. They looked just like us, and presented their alphabet and language remarkably like French. The psychiatrist Carl Jung, in his 1902 doctoral dissertation, described a young Swiss woman who was agitated to discover, sitting across from her on the train, a star-dweller from Mars. Martians are innocent of science, philosophy, and souls, she was told, but have advanced technology. Quote, flying machines have long been in existence on Mars. The whole of Mars is covered with canals, and so on. Carl Sagan goes on, Charles Fort, a collector of anomalous reports who died in 1932, wrote, Perhaps there are inhabitants of Mars who are secretly sending reports upon the ways of this world to their governments. In the 1950s, there was a book 
by Gerald Hurd that revealed the saucer occupants to be intelligent Martian bees. Who else could survive the fantastic right-angle turns reported for UFOs? <laughs> bees. <laughs> um, uh, Carl goes on, But after the canals were shown to be illusory for Mariner 9 in 1971, and after no compelling evidence even for microbes was found on Mars by Vikings 1 and 2 in 1976, popular enthusiasm for the Lowellian Mars waned and we heard little about visiting Martians. Aliens were then reported to come from somewhere else. Why? Why no more Martians? And after the surface of Venus was found to be hot enough to melt lead, there were no more visiting Venusians. Does some part of these stories adjust to the current canons of belief? What does that imply about their origin? There's no doubt that humans commonly hallucinate. There's considerable doubt about whether extraterrestrials exist, frequent our planet, or abduct and molest us. We might argue about details, but the one category of explanation is surely much better supported than the other. The main reservation you might then have is, why do so many people today report this particular set of hallucinations? Why somber little beings and flying saucers in sexual experimentation? And that's what Carl Sagan leaves you off with, those two questions. But in a nutshell, um, this chapter of Hallucinations goes over some pretty good evidence for why people may have been, quote, abducted. Um, <laughs> because while they probably didn't, they may have just been hallucinating. And however spiritual you may be, or, you know, maybe hallucinations might be a real thing for you. Maybe, maybe it's just hallucinations from your mind and your mind's just being weird for you. And definitely sounds like fun to hallucinate. And probably also scary at the same time, especially if it's a scary hallucination. But anyway, what the hell do I know? Um, so, yeah, I felt like I had to read a lot of that because it was very interesting, especially to learn about Barney and Betty Hill, the Hills, and how they had a shared hallucination together of being abducted by an alien. Uh, it's kind of interesting. But, yeah, the next chapter we'll go over is Chapter 7, and which is kind of funnily called The Demon Haunted World, which the book is called The Demon Haunted World. Um, and so, yeah, we'll go through that. And I'll see you next time on the show with Joe. Enjoy your life. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Don't be a dick. And yeah, have fun. <laughs>